Good morning. When you go to the Bible, is it in your mind that God is the author and as we just sang from his word, he is exalted above the heavens. There is none like him. When we come to the book of Hebrews, we're going to be in chapter one, Hebrews today. And I'm going to spend most of my time in the first four verses. This book was written to those people who were of Jewish descent, who were believers in Christ. Their Messiah had come. And the author is about declaring to them and revealing to them the glorious risen Christ. All throughout Genesis, we've been hearing and we've been seeing these types and shadows and these pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. He has come. And at this point in redemptive history, he has conquered sin and death and he has ascended to the Father. Hebrews is a book of contrasts. In this book, we see we have a new and better priesthood. We have a new and better covenant. We have a heavenly Jerusalem. All of these new things are dependent upon the better son, the better prophet, the supreme son. You and I, we are sons and daughters of God. But there is this one who is the supreme son, who has made the way right, made the way straight for all that he is called by name. This son who was the final firstborn, he is blessed above all and he has inherited all things. He is the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things and he's the heir of all things. This supreme son, this Jesus, is higher than the angels. He is superior to them. And don't forget that we see throughout all Scripture that angels are superior to us. He is superior to the angelic host. I'm going to read the first four verses of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things, upholding all things by the word of his power. And when he had purged himself, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. This epistle starts without a personal greeting. You find this a lot in the letters written by Paul and Peter and James. Personal greeting to the saints. The author of Hebrews Scripture doesn't tell us for sure who he is. People argue about it, and I'm not going to get into that. The author of Hebrews, he's wanting to let these people know who this Christ is. That's his goal. 
He wants to grab their attention. John, I don't think John wrote Hebrews at all, but if you look at John's Gospel, and look at the first four verses of John's Gospel, hear how similar it is to what we just heard from Hebrews. John chapter 1, the first four verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So I cheated and read five verses. The point is that Scripture is consistent. John and the the author of Hebrews are telling us the same thing. That God in Christ, pre-existing all creation, created all things, holds all things together, Paul wrote in Colossians. They declare Christ to be God, to be with God, and to be the source of life. And when God spoke through the prophets of old... As it says in our text, in various ways, spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. His word was meant to be clear to his people. His word was not always clear to those who were not his people. And though it was not as clear as redemptive history unfolds, what they were given to them was clear enough so that Abraham could see Christ in his day and rejoice. So that Abraham knew that he was looking for not a piece of dirt in the Middle East, but a city whose builder was God. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, see, this this shows you that God's people are supposed to understand his word. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, you remember in John chapter three, and Jesus said, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Nicodemus didn't understand. How can a guy do that? Jesus said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? The teacher, not a teacher. He was one of the senior guys in the Pharisees that taught Israel. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? They were supposed to understand. Hidden from those who are not in Christ, the written word from Almighty God through the illumination of the Holy Spirit gives Christians certain Hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we must trust in what he has written. We have got a sure word between the covers of this book we call the Bible. People that look for a continuing revelation are going to imagine many things, some of which are vain and can be dangerous to their souls. Why go there into that quicksand of theology when you have a sure word? None of us can come to the end of understanding anyway. It's like Michael was talking about this morning. There are some things that we just shy away from because we don't fully understand it. There's always going to be things about God that are beyond our ability to comprehend. Yet He draws near to us and He gives us understanding if we come to Him humbly and not trying to impose our beliefs on what He has given us. The Jews were more interested in their position with men than they were with knowing the truth of the Scriptures that God had given them. 
they refused to understand about what Jesus was saying about their forefather Abraham. I mentioned those two things about Abraham that he saw Jesus in his day and he was glad in that John eight fifty six and he was looking for the city whose foundation builder and maker is God, Hebrews eleven. These examples demonstrate the wonder and mystery of God redeeming sinful men and giving them a living hope in Christ Jesus. How else could Abraham know that all these land promises that would be fulfilled in the dirt in the Middle East, but their ultimate fulfillment was in this city whose builder was God. Uh, Peter would write that you and you and you and me, we are spiritual stones being built together to make this house unto God. All of this ties to this passage in several ways that I want to help you see. First off in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus is superior to the prophets. In Adam's time forward, God spoke directly to his people and through men chosen by him to be ambassadors for that time and people. Verse 1 says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. These prophets were men of God chosen and equipped by him to preach his word to his people and yet they often couldn't understand it, didn't want to hear it, and they hated and persecuted the prophets. Who was it they put down in a cistern for 30 days? Jeremiah? They didn't like what he had to say, and so they threw him in a well. That's the way unbelievers treated the prophets. It's been 400 years since the last prophet spoke in the first century And the Jews weren't content with what God revealed in the Jewish Scriptures. And so they had imposed all kind of religious rules and power structures in their attempt to control people and keep them under their thumb. That's what religion does. tries to make up a list of rules you have to keep so the leaders can keep you under their thumb. A new prophet came, John the Baptist. He was hated by the Jewish leaders. Uh, the people that God was calling out of their midst, they, they knew he was a prophet, and this caused the Jewish leaders to fear him. He was embraced by many common folk who had grown weary of the heavy yoke of the Jewish religion. These prophets were rejected by the people, respected by the people, rather, as they had recalled what Yahweh had done, even as the prophets were hated by the leaders. You see, when Jesus came and he healed people, People like that because people, medicine wasn't like it is today anyway. And poor people couldn't avail themselves of what medical progress they had back then to a large degree. So when he came and healed people, man, the poor people rejoiced. This points to the contrast between the people of God and the people of the kingdom. The people of the world will cherish gifts. And this is why people still want to see sign gifts, they're called, and miracles. And they're not content with the greatest miracle of all is when a person who is in spiritual death is brought to spiritual life. How much more significant is it to inherit eternal life and have peace with God 
than it is to simply be cured of an ailment in your body. 80 years, 100 years, you know, you're going to live here. How does that compare? We who have been born spiritually by the will of God are not to fear men, but we're to have a right fear of holy God. And these Pharisees had it reversed. They didn't fear the Son of God walking in their midst, but they feared the people. That's the situation that our author quickly confronts as he states that God has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. You remember on the day of Ascension, the Transfiguration rather, Jesus comes down, got Moses and Elijah. Peter gets excited, wants to build them all tents. And then while he is yet speaking, God shuts him up. And Moses and Elijah disappear. And there's Jesus alone. And the God of heaven saying to Peter, said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He listened to him. God spoke. Now, a couple of decades later, author of Hebrews says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I see, all the Jews had been looking for the son of David that would sit in David's throne. Physical throne forever. I've heard dispensationalists tell me that in their new millennium before the return of Christ, that Christ will be there and David will be on his throne as his vice regent. I'm sorry, but that's twisted. There is but one son of David who is going to sit on the throne. And he is the eternal son the firstborn of all of us. Because Jesus didn't fit their expectations because even though He is the Son of David and He was prophesied as this promised Son in many Old Testament passages, including Jeremiah 33, you see this in Revelation 3 where Jesus is said to have the key of David. And yet he is more than simply another son of David. He is the son of God. We were talking yesterday morning. uh, Jeremy brought a devotion about how Jesus, he apprehended to himself this title, son of man. He had to he was demonstrating, I think, his identity with us. He was the son of man. It harkens back to Ezekiel's day as well. But he is also the son of God. And this is the way that we who know him have to try to comprehend this hypostatic union, fully God and fully man. There's but one, the supreme son of God. None of you, not me, qualify, meet that criteria. We must understand who he is or else we will end up just like the Pharisees. They didn't see him rightly. And the author of Hebrews wants his audience to know for certain who Jesus is. That's the point of this whole letter. One part of this verse should grab our attention. He said, in these last days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This was written before 70 A.D., before the fall of Jerusalem. What does it mean in these last days? Acts 2.17, Hebrews 9.26, and 1 Peter 1.20 all use this phrase, and they all use it to describe a contrast to the age of national Israel. 
So there's an age of national Israel and there's this age that we are in that is after that. In Hebrews 9.26 it says, But now, once at the end of the ages, He, Jesus, has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of His self. So, this tells us, first of all, that these last days and the end of the ages were present day for the first century saints. The last age has already started. It's like we have been hearing that the kingdom of God is among you. It's within you. right? The kingdom of God is here. But it's not what it will be. When this age ends, the kingdom of God will be complete and full in glory on the new earth. This is the basis for Christians over the centuries thinking they were living in the last days. And considering the span of time from Jesus' advent to his, his return as the last days. Every generation has hoped for His return. Every generation has had saints going through trials, praising His name and saying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That ought to be the heartbeat of we His people. We are in the last days. And this is good for us to bear in mind because we're commanded to always be ready for His return for no man knows when He will be coming back. And when He comes back, it will be suddenly. We won't know it's coming until it's evident everywhere. When Christ returns and the heavens and earth are reborn after judgment, the kingdom will be seen clearly and experienced fully by all of God's children. And so we ought to live for him now while looking forward to when Christ makes all things new. And as we recently heard At that time, there will be no sorrow, no disease, no temptation, and no sin. Next thing I want to point out is the identity of the Son. Who is this guy? Verse 2 ends with this phrase. Whom, talking about the Son, whom He, God, has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. The phrase heir of all things would remind the Jewish audience of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, today are you, today you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. This tells those who first heard this message that this son who is the end of the prophets is the son of God. Because Psalm 2 refers to him. The Son of God is God. And this is validated by the position he has. He's the heir of all things. When When a human father has a will and he appoints his son to be his heir, it means when the father dies, the son gets all of his stuff. God hasn't died. The Son did. The Son who is God, He died so that we would have life. He was born again. And that is when He inherited everything. It's not quite the same as human wills and human deaths and human inheritance. But it does validate Him as the Son because 
The Son is the one who inherits all things given to him by the Father. His role in creation through whom he also created the worlds. So the Son is the creator. Now we know from reading Genesis, we've studied that. Last year we started Genesis. Who created everything? God did. Well, isn't God that, that God the Father? Well, yes, but we read later. The triune God. The Son is the agent who created all things. So this Son who's the heir of all things, He is the Son who created all things. This Son is God. He is the one who fulfilled the law. Kyle taught us that in Matthew 5. What does it mean to have fulfilled the law? To bring it to its intended culmination or end. Summed it all up in his person. He satisfied the Father's will. What, is, what was the Father's will for him? John 6 says, I will save every sheep the Father gives to me and I will lose none of them. He was given the ends of the earth as his possession. Jesus claimed that he had this whenever he gave his great commission. He told his disciples that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him. How do you have authority over stuff that you don't possess? He had been given everything as an inheritance and he possessed all authority over it. And that's his basis for giving that commission to all of us. Go make disciples. And this description of the son's end, end, end of the son ends with the first part of chapter three. This son being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word word of his power. See, this is interesting. Being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. I had a guy tell me not too long ago that we shouldn't worship Jesus because he's just a copy of God. Referring to this. He's not understanding the scripture. The brightness of his glory and the express image of his person says he's exactly like him. He is him who is God. Man is made in the image of God and man is the crowning glory of creation. But the son of God is infinitely superior. He is. He doesn't merely possess. The radiance of the glory of God and the power as creator. He's not part of creation. You and I are. We're we're created beings. Moses couldn't look upon the Father. Glory was too much for him to behold. So God covered him up a bit and showed him just a part of his glory. And it was so awesome that Moses' face shone so brightly when he came down the mountain that people couldn't bear to look at him. He had to cover his face until the brightness wore off. See, that's kind of like the moon reflecting the sun's glory. The sun never stops being the sun. It just gets hidden as the earth rotates and you know, it's, the sun is hidden from us for a while, but it's still shining. Moses, the glory that reflected off of him faded after a while. He didn't possess it. He didn't have it as an inherent part of him. 
Jesus is, he doesn't possess, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. It's his nature, and it can't be tarnished or taken away from him. And because we learn slowly and are dull of hearing, the author tells us that Jesus is the exact image, the express image of his person. So how does that differ from you and I being made in the image of God? The only thing I can think of is kind of like uh, currency. You think of the paper and the plates used in currency. The paper is specially crafted so it's not easy to counterfeit. And the plates are carefully crafted and heavily guarded so nobody can steal them. So, you make an exact image of that plate and you get a piece of legal currency. It's the real thing. You and I, we're kind of like somebody took a $2 bill and put it on a cheap copier and ran it off a few times. And that That's how the... In my mind, anyway, that's the difference between the glory that we have, the image of God we are, tarnished by sin, and the exact image, the express image of God in Christ that He is. He upholds the world by His word of power. It's interesting, this word of power... You see this image in Revelation 19. Jesus is said to have a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. There are some people that think that's a literal sword. But it is his word of power. At his word, his enemies will be defeated. He doesn't need carnal weapons to defeat carnal creatures. His words have power that uphold the universe. I've said it before. The table of elements are kept stable because Christ is faithful. Styrofoam cup holds water. Not because man is so clever as to make a foam cup. But because Christ holds all things together by the word of his power. This is the word of God. This is God the Son. This is the identity of this Son that we must have. And the next thing I want us to see in this passage is the work of the Son. It says, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This, this one sentence is rich tapestry proclaiming the glorious work of the Lamb of God. After making purification for sins. Another translation has it that, that way. He sat down. This phrase connotes completion of work. When a, when a king would finish building his castle, he would sit down. This, this connotes to everybody, I'm done. I'm finished. I'm ready to reign now. I'm going to sit where I'm supposed to sit and I'm going to rule. Jesus completed his work. He sat down. And where did he sit? 
He sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. This tells us he is highly approved. The same voice that spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son at his baptism, at his transfiguration. This is my beloved son sat at his right hand. God is esteeming his son greatly because he's finished the work he was sent to do. Jesus made complete payment for sins on the cross. He, he wasn't merely a man being crucified. Many thousands of men have been crucified. This man had no sin. This man, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. It's called the great exchange by theologians. He drank the cup of wrath, do you and me, having taken his sin upon upon himself. He did things that we could not. The Old Testament priests, they had to go sacrifice for their own sins before they could sacrifice for the sins of the people. And these sacrifices, as Hebrews will later tell us, they didn't remove sin, they just covered it for a season. Next year, have to go through the whole thing all over again because we just covered it up. It's like putting paint on a black wall that you didn't prime. After a while, that black paint's going to come through that white that you put on it. That whitewash will not hide it forever. These sacrifices of animals could not perfect the conscience of the worshipers. Those who anticipated the Lamb of God who would actually take away sin and whose sacrifice actually purifies the conscience of his worshipers. Now, this is one of the things that says in the deacon qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 is that they must hold the gospel in a, with a clear conscience. Do you have a clear conscience when it comes to the gospel? Do you hold the word of God with a clear conscience? Knowing you don't understand everything, but trusting that whatever God has said is true. That's what we're called to do. When Jesus sat down, it echoes what happened after creation. You you know from Genesis on the seventh day, God looked at everything and he saw it was good. It was very good. He rested and he sanctified that day. He basically sat down. He rested from his work. His work of creation. He didn't rest from his work of maintaining everything and acting in, in history and making history unfold the way that he designed it. But his creation work was finished. The Son and the Spirit all had roles to play in that creation work. It's one and done. This work of redemption. All three members of the Trinity are involved in this. The Father calls forth those who's going to be saved. And he hands them over to the Son. And the Son redeems them off of the slave market of sin. And the Spirit of God seals them in Christ so that they cannot be lost. All three members of the Trinity working in perfect harmony. And when that work was done, Jesus sat down conveying the idea that that work is finished. Now, they're not resting from all work, but they're resting from the work of redemption. Because the Holy Spirit is active yet today convicting people of sin and giving illumination as we read the word. He's not asleep and he's not resting. Doesn't need to rest like we do. 
But they've, they've had these two phases of work that don't need to be repeated. And they have other work that they are continuing to do. The last thing I want to point out is the sun compared to the angels. Verse 4. Jesus, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they have. This, this last point brings to a topic that will be fully developed later in this epistle. Jesus is not merely being contrasted to the angels, although he is being contrasted to the angels. We as mortals were created a little lower than the angels. Psalm 8 verses 4 and 5 speak to this. That Jesus was superior to the angels. He was, he was made a man and for a little while he was a little lower than the angels. Hebrews 2.7 tells us that. As he walked in humility as a man, he was lower than the angels like you and I are. But Hebrews also applies Psalm 8 to Jesus showing that having completed his work of atonement, the atonement that doesn't just cover sins, but it does away with them, he became much more superior to the angels with a name that is much more excellent than is theirs. Ephesians 1.21 tells us that his name is far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Jesus' name, because of what he has done for us, is above every name in this age and in the age to come. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And you know this part, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Eh? Paul kind of run out of words to use to describe what he was seeing, what he was filled up with, talking about the glory of God in Christ and how above everything and as he told the people in Acts 17, he is Lord of all. Lord of all. This name above every name. He is Lord over all things. These authors trying to impress upon us what the Scriptures say that he is exalted. That needs to sink down in our souls that we don't get complacent and just see God as a genteel old grandfather in heaven that's making a life good for us than giving a nice place to live when we die. No, he is far more than that. Several places in Scripture, in Acts 7, Galatians 3, and Hebrews 2, the covenant given to Moses and the Hebrew people is described as being delivered or mediated by angels, put in place by angels, declared by angels. The covenant that we are brought into, it was brought about by the blood of Christ. He said when he was initiating the Lord's Supper, this is the blood of the new covenant covenant. 
This new covenant, the one that nobody enters in unless they've been born again by the Spirit of God. This new covenant is better than the old covenant, which could not take away sins, but only cover them for a season. And this is the deepest meaning of him being superior to the angels. His covenant delivers sinners from spiritual death to being reconciled to the ever-living holy God. He alone among all men is God. And he is worthy of our worship and devotion and obedience. The rest of this chapter, which I'm not going to go into, but I'm going to read it, expounds on verse 4. Verse 4 says, Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now listen to what this author says. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? All these quotations from Psalms and Samuel and Deuteronomy assigning to Christ these great testimonies that set him above the angels. There's a lot of attention focused on angels. And sometimes people think they're a lot more than they are. But this Christ is so far above them because to which of the angels has he said these things? None of them. How do we respond to this? The sun that is being revealed to us. All the types and the shadows, all of them pointed to and they find their fulfillment, their end, their, their teleos. They come to their conclusion in Christ, so you don't go any further than Christ because the, He's the end of all these things. All these things are summed up in the person and the work of Jesus. There's nowhere else to go. Lord, who can we go? Where can we go? You have the keys of eternal life. Redemption from bondage in Egypt gave way to redemption from sin. Salvation from pagan nations like Assyria and Syria and Babylon, they gave way to salvation from sin. Covering of sin gave way to the one-time payment to do away with sin. Physical healings, blindness, leprosy, etc., pointed to the spiritual healing 
that signifies doing away with sin. All of this emphasizes the problem we have. The problem we have isn't physical bondage, isn't physical slavery, isn't physical maladies. The problem we all have, the problem mankind has, is sin. Something has to be done about sin. Redemption and healing of the soul is only found in this supreme son. Not just any son will do. Gabriel was talking yesterday, Gabino rather, was talking yesterday morning about this Hebrew-Israelite cults that are going around the country. And they got a different view of how to have peace with God. A lot of cults have a different view about how to have peace with God. No man comes to the Father. No man comes to the Father except by the Son. This Son. In ancient times, God spoke to His people through the prophets. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. And how do we know what He has spoken to us by the Son? What, what did He say? Scripture tells us what He has said. How has He spoken to us in these last days? He gave it to us in Scripture. Now, we can be content with what He has revealed to us. Or we can be like the Jews and seek after signs and go after words of knowledge, substituting man's imagination for God's Word. Many do this and they make a shipwreck of their faith. If you want a sure word, you have to stick with a written word. Now, we got to be satisfied with what He has seen fit to give us. There's things that we may not understand. There are places where I wish He'd given us more information. I bet you you got places like that where you wish He'd told us more. we got to be content to trust Him. Even when our own human curiosity hasn't been satisfied. Now, a Christian can be can reasonably claim to be led by the Spirit. If what a Christian desires to do aligns with what the Bible shows to be honorable, then the Christian is being led by the Holy Spirit. But if what he wants to do is sin, then he's being led by the Spirit of the age. Now, it's far more defensible to say that you believe you are being led by the Holy Spirit than it is to say that you've been told by God you ought to do something. Hmm. If you say that Yahweh told you to do something and it goes horribly wrong and it ends up bringing a scandal to his name, you're going to blame him for that because he's the one who told you to do it? See, the only way you can know that God has told you something is if you find it in here and you rightly apply it to yourself. Now, if you think that God is telling you to go off and preach the gospel to the Indians in India... That's an honorable thing. That could be that the Spirit of God is leading you to do that. But it ain't safe to say God told me to go to India and preach the gospel to the Indians. Because if God is speaking to you, what need do you have of the Bible? All of the dreams and words that come to people in the Bible, God spoke to them that way. That was the exception, you realize, not the norm. Even in the New Covenant passages, the New Testament Scriptures, the miracles were the exception, not the norm. 
And see, we humans like sensational stuff. We're attracted to automobile accidents. You know, that kind of thing. We like the sensational stuff. What we've been told to trust in is sensational at times, but most of the time it is simply trust God. When the Hebrews were being taught what their weekly Sabbath was with manna, and they were told, gather up twice as much on the sixth day because on the seventh there ain't going to be none. You've got to stay in your house. They had farm animals to tend. They had dairy cows and dairy goats. And you've got to milk those critters every single day. But they had to stay in their place. Why? Trust your God was the lesson they had to learn. Trust God. God has spoken to us in his son and the Bible is God's record of what he wants his people to know in this age. The age we're in, this is the word of God. If we're not content with what he has revealed to us, then we're going to go astray seeking revelation that he has not given us. And you got people running around saying that they're apostles. Had a person the other day tell me online that this fellow, David, whatever his name is, is an apostle. And I said, really? How do you know that he's an apostle? Well, God told him he was. Well, does he meet the biblical qualifications for an apostle? Not going to talk to you anymore. Don't like your attitude. Okay. You go, you're not satisfied with what he's given us? You can end up doing something Ridiculous like that. Jesus is superior to the prophets and the angels, and in him all things hold together. How? how what more than that can we want? How? You think about what that conveys, what information that conveys, what glories that conveys. He's superior to the prophets and the angels, and in him all things hold together. You got security in that son that you can't get anywhere else. Why would we not be content with what the Bible tells us about him? He is complete. When we say that we've got a word from God that's not found in Scripture, we're saying Jesus is not complete. When we say the Spirit's leading us in truth and righteousness sanctifying us so that we desire what is right and honorable in God's sight, we're saying that we're not sufficient, we're not complete. But Christ is. And being found in Him is our completion. We always are going to need this. This I think even into eternity, we're never going to learn all there is to know about God. But in this age, We need the help of the Spirit. We need one another in this community of believers to help us grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus because we all have blind spots. We all have error in our theology and we cannot be trusted to be left alone. In Christ we live and move and have our being. In Him we are complete. Paul wrote that in Colossians. I didn't write the reference down, but he says he says that you are complete in Christ. See, no matter your station in life, no matter if you're a believer for two days or a believer for 20 years or 50 years, you are complete in Christ. 
That doesn't mean you don't have any growth to go through, but you're complete. You are a new person in Christ. We need to rest in Him because His yoke is easy. The the yoke of works righteousness is a very heavy yoke. The Son comes along and He has a yoke that is not heavy. He's stronger than we are. And he bears the load that we're told to carry. We should trust in him because he's the faithful witness. He comes to John in the first chapter of the Revelation and declares himself to be the faithful witness. What other witness are you going to trust? We need to worship him and glorify him in everything that we do because he is the victorious Lamb who has defeated hell and death. We sing songs in Christ alone who took on flesh. Veiled Himself in human flesh. And as He rose in victory, Sin has lost its grip on me, for I am His and He is mine, bought with the blood of Christ. Is that true for you? That is the only security that anybody can have. He calls us to come to Him with thanksgiving. How can you not be thankful? How can we not be thankful? This one who gave himself for us, this one who drank the cup of wrath to us, he has done it all. And he says to his own children, come to me. Come to me. You may not be one of his children, but if he is calling you, you need to come to him because he will call his children and he will find every lost sheep that his father has given him to find. Because he is not just a son. He is the supreme son. And he's the one of whom the father has said, listen to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've not left us to ourselves.